Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, I hate to do this, but I have to troll oh, you. I knew, I knew it. I knew you were going to do this. <laughs> I knew it. I'll spare you. I'll spare you um, the effort. But yes, there is a crisis that we haven't covered yet. <laughs> and I'm never going to let you forget the time when you said that we had touched all the bases of this. When there were clearly several several more major areas that we uh, had yet to discuss. But we're starting to get there in terms of hitting all the really big themes, I think. Okay. Okay. I, I'm not going to respond. So, but yes, go ahead. What okay. of the many crises will we be covering today? Okay. So one that we definitely have not talked about yet is emerging markets. And, you know, there are all kinds of aspects to a extraordinary economic disruption of this sort, the likes of which we've never seen in terms of essentially a mandated halt to so many businesses worldwide. But one uh, acute vulnerability point is obviously emerging markets, countries whose economies may rely on tourism or other exports to uh, richer countries, countries that have a lot of dollar-denominated debts but are suddenly finding it very difficult to acquire those dollars in their normal means of business. This is a huge shock domestically for many countries, but also a huge shock to world trade. And of course, emerging markets are sort of necessarily the most, uh, the most at risk here. Right. So you have this perfect storm, really, of pressures on emerging markets. You have the big spike in the dollar, which, as you mentioned, causes pain for emerging markets in different ways, a bunch of different ways. You also have the contraction in global trade. You have the fall in the oil price, which is bad if you're an oil exporting developing nation. And then, of course, you have the coronavirus pandemic itself, which could disproportionately impact developing countries given that they have fewer health resources, fewer financial resources, and uh, different, not really ideal living conditions to actually battle the virus. So yeah, it's it's a pretty bad mix for EM at the moment. Right. The way, as you put it, they're really sort of like just being buffeted on every side right now. So our guest today, and I, I feel like uh, uh, our guest today is yet another one of our recent guests that deserves... Uh, when we eventually get Oddlot's uh, tote bags or something <laughs> like this, because this might be his fourth or fifth time. We've talked to Dan Wing several times. We've talked to Chris White several times. And of course, our guest today, Brad Setzer, it's got to be at least his fifth time talking to us since we launched the uh, podcast. But he uh, has been tracking the EM angle very closely and really has been uh, for years, but uh, now sort of with this particular crisis. And so we'll sort of get a broad overview of um, the crisis facing different EMs and what needs to be done going forward. So without further ado, uh, Brad Setzer, thank you very much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Brad, just sort of big picture, have you, how does this shock to the real economy for EMs as a whole? And I know people always say, oh, you can't look at EMs as a whole and every country has its unique, uh, situation, but as a whole, how does it compare to prior major downturns in global trade or the global economy? And this this uh, shock is clearly going to be significantly worse than the 2008 shock 
uh, the global financial crisis, it's clearly going to be significantly worse uh, than the Asian financial crisis. I think this is uh, uh, across a range of measures, you know, it is the biggest shock the emerging world has faced in the last 30 years. Yeah, I think I saw someone on Twitter describing um, the current economic situation or the crisis as sort of like the Spanish flu meets Great Depression meets 2008 financial crisis meets Asia financial crisis, which is a pretty terrible mix. Uh, When it comes to EMs, what would you say is the biggest pressure point at the moment? What's causing the most pain? Well, I think there are uh, two distinct pressure points. Uh, One pressure point is the uh, global financial crisis analog pressure point. Those countries that have borrowed in dollars or those countries that have a large dependence on foreign investors holding their local currency debt uh, have had difficulty borrowing dollars and have had to manage a world where a lot of foreign investors are pulling money out. And then that's been combined with a, a shock to global trade, but a particularly sharp shock to global trade and tourism and global commodity prices. So a symmetric fall in trade, um, it obviously hurts activity, but it doesn't create gaps between exports and imports. But if you're reliant on tourism and tourism goes to zero, uh, all of a sudden you can't pay your import bill. If you rely on oil exports and your break-even used to be 50 or 60, and you can't get $20 a barrel today for lower volumes, all of a sudden, again, you can't cover your import bill. So it's the combination of the financial shock and the real shock, the real shock to trade. The shock to health is almost certainly coming, uh, but I think there, for most emerging economies, Uh, That's uh, something that'll play out over the next month. Before we go any further, a little bit of housekeeping. Two points is A, of course, we've had Brad on so many times, I didn't even really properly introduce him in the beginning, but he is a senior fellow for the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as a senior advisor of Exante Data. I just feel like, so hopefully most of our listeners have heard Brad or followed him for a long time, uh, but forgot to do that. Also, another crucial piece. We went the uh, we went the no introduction necessary yeah. route. Right, which is, which is a form of praise, really. Uh, and also another crucial form of uh, consideration. We're recording this April 9th, 2020. And we've been saying that a lot. Oh, we want people to know exactly which day it's been recording because uh, things are moving so fast. But there's another special reason it's important to bear in mind the day that we're recording this which is that next week, which is when people will likely be listening to this, uh, is the IMF uh, spring meetings. And those, of course, take on new urgency in light of the sort of twin shocks that Brad has uh, just described. So, of course, we're recording this before those happened, and we don't know what will have been announced by the time you're listening. But sort of, Brad, uh, that gives us a chance to pivot, again, sort of big picture what is the role of the IMF in alleviating some of the uh, acute crisis? And what does it have in its toolbox when so many countries are all suffering at the exact same time? So the, the IMF's role, broadly speaking, 
is to lend reserves, foreign exchange reserves, to countries that don't have enough foreign exchange reserves. And that may be countries that don't have enough foreign exchange reserves relative to their short-term debt that is coming due. Maybe that countries that don't have enough foreign exchange reserves relative to the number of foreign investors in their local markets who want to get out. Or it may be that countries that don't have enough foreign exchange reserves to cover the fall off in their exports without reducing their imports very dramatically. Now, there's some details. You know, the IMF can, uh, in the process of providing balance of payments support, also provide budget financing. And that certainly will uh, have a role. But in general, the IMF is a an institution that is designed to provide countries that need reserves with reserves and to give, lend people reserves for longer periods of time and for a broader set of uses than say the kind of foreign exchange which is provided through say the Fed swap lines, which is really short-term uh, lending to support short-term funding needs of banks. The IMF has a lot more flexibility it lends for several years, varies a little bit, but it usually lends uh, in conjunction with uh, a program of some reform and policy change. Now, look, we're in a different world than the usual world. Uh, the reforms or policy changes that may go with the IMF lending, and in this context, maybe we, the IMF, ask you to spend more on your public health system or the IMF ask you uh, to increase the amount of public spending uh, to poor families. I don't think the conditionality needs to be thought of as the traditional conditionality in all cases. And that'll be interesting to see uh, whether or not we, we get an element of that in uh, next week's IMF meetings. Um, just when it comes to the state of FX reserves in emerging markets. Can you give us a sort of high-level overview of what those look like right now? Who is best positioned in this environment and who is maybe uh, worse off? So sure. I mean, there are a set of emerging economies that basically interact with the global economy as creditors. They have more foreign assets than they have foreign liabilities. Uh, and in many cases, they have more liquid foreign exchange reserves in their central bank than they have external debt. That is broadly uh, a, a description of Korea. It's broadly a description of China. It is certainly a description of Taiwan. It is a description of Thailand. On the other end of the spectrum are emerging markets that have almost no reserves or almost no reserves that they haven't borrowed from their own banks and have substantial external debts. Uh, the most extreme case is Lebanon, uh, but Turkey falls in that category. And then you have, I think Argentina, broadly speaking, as we all know, falls in that category. And then you have a, a, a set of countries in the middle, countries that do have reserves, uh, that do have already pre-negotiated credit lines from the IMF, uh, but have substantial external debt. And it is possible that the withdrawal of foreign credit together with a loss of export receipts 
uh, could leave them short reserves. So those are countries like Colombia or Indonesia, uh, South Africa, uh, and in bad states of the world, uh, even a country like Mexico, which is a special case because of its relationship with the United States. And then that same split is present amongst the uh, oil exporting economies. Saudi Arabia and Russia are the two biggest, both have about a half trillion in reserves. Uh, that's enough that they can, broadly speaking, uh, cover their imports this year, even if oil doesn't rebound, and still have enough reserves so there's no real threat to financial stability. But then there are much weaker oil exporting economies, Algeria, Oman, Angola, Nigeria, almost, you know, Ecuador, obviously, the list goes on and on. And those countries, broadly speaking, uh, lack enough foreign exchange inflow to pay their foreign debts right now. I have a question that might be a little stupid, and it's not facetious, but I think some people might interpret it as such. Does a country like Argentina, which has spent years of being sort of quasi-disconnected already from the global financial system due to all of its defaults, is this less of a shock in a weird way to them because this is sort of uh, business as usual? Yes, I think that's right, actually. Um, it's less of a shock because even before the coronavirus, Argentina was seeking uh, a debt restructuring for all of its external debt. Uh, and that debt restructuring was going to involve almost no near-term payments. So, you know, essentially, they, they, their creditors were already anticipating a deep loss and no near-term cash flow. It's also a smaller shock uh, just because of the structure of Argentina's exports, to be honest. Uh, Argentina exports soybeans, wheat, and beef. And if you think of the kind of trade that is likely to see the least disruption, uh, that's trade in, in basic foods. And while soy is an input into the production of, of chicken and pork, it's a pretty important input. And so therefore, Argentina's trade is gonna see somewhat less disruption. So I think both on the financial side, uh, you know, Argentina was already essentially heading to default, uh, already not going to be paying, already reliant on the IMF. And on the current account side, they happen to be in a position where there's a reasonable uh, basis for thinking that they'll see a smaller loss in exports. Yeah, but you can look at other countries like Lebanon, which is very reliant on tourism and remittances and faces an even bigger problem, even though they too essentially entered the coronavirus shock uh, in default. Right. And we actually have an All Lots episode with Paul McNamara uh, talking specifically about the situation in Lebanon from uh, a few months ago. And I, I don't think things have improved since then. Um, I wanted to go back uh, just to the idea of external debt in emerging markets. It, it's not like this hasn't been on people's radars before. Uh, you know, we saw the Bank for International Settlements, for instance, writing over and over and over that dollar denominated borrowing was a potential vulnerability in emerging markets. And now it seems like it, it could really come back to haunt them. We did see some emerging market economies that did try to borrow more through domestic currency bonds. Has that helped them at all? 
Yes. Uh, you know, I think it obviously helps if your currency falls 20%, if your debt is denominated in your own currency. If your debt's denominated in foreign currency, the real burden of that debt goes up. It hasn't been a panacea. The fact that a lot of foreign investors were holding local currency debt meant that they were more exposed to currency moves. And in their efforts to limit their exposure to further falls in the currency, they would sell, and that puts pressure on the local bond market. It puts pressure, obviously, on the exchange rate. So in that sense, it became a, an amplifier of the, a lot of the currency moves. But in a sort of strange way, it amplifies those moves, which is bad, but it makes the country itself less vulnerable to the impact of a, an undervalued currency. Uh, but it clearly has introduced a new, new type of dynamic into the market. Uh, and that dynamic can in its own way be destabilized. So, Brad, obviously, one of the questions out there is we don't really know, and everyone's just sort of guessing what post-crisis economic behavior will look like. Presumably, some tourism will come back, but we don't know how many years it will take uh, for tourism to return to, say, 2019 levels or people to be comfortable traveling at the same degree they did. We don't know the degree to which a rich country like the U.S. may choose to uh, prioritize importing fewer things, especially after what we've seen in terms of shortages of masks and ventilators and other sort of basic equipment. Will this, in your view, create a rethink uh, about these sort of financial and growth models that EMs have currently undertaken in terms of the presumption that tourist revenue or export revenue uh, just might not be there again? And how much could we plausibly expect to see that all change? You know, I think it's it's a good question. It's a hard question. I think uh, I think you're right to say that those emerging markets that were most reliant on tourism uh, face a particularly difficult challenge. You know, th those emerging economies most reliant on oil also potentially face a long-run challenge. Depends on the extent to which oil demand rebounds and where the long-run price settles. Uh, but you could imagine this not being a, a temporary shock. Uh, and then manufacturing heavy uh, East Asia does face a shock to their growth models, and China in particular. If the world moves away from a model of what you might call full globalization, which would be if all of our phones come from China and all of our personal protective equipment comes from China, that's fine, uh, that's more efficient, uh, to a world where there's more desire for uh, at least regionalization of supply chains, if not nationalization, and a much higher priority on resilience. Resilience can mean bigger stockpiles, but resilience can also mean local manufacturers who have the capacity to ra ramp up production in bad states of the world. Uh, so I do think that 
there will be some very significant challenges. In some cases, that may create new opportunities. You know, uh, a world where there is more regionalization of supply chains, uh, particularly in North America, would arguably be good for Mexico at the expense of China. And it would help Mexico manage uh, the loss of uh, oil export revenue and the tax revenue that Mexico has historically gotten from its oil production. Uh, but it does imply some important uh, long-run adjustments on the part of many uh, economies. Mm. Uh, speaking of long-run adjustments, uh, we're talking a lot about um, the, the vulnerability of emerging markets that have borrowed in dollars, the attempts to shift away from that a little bit and issue more local currency debt. Would you expect the current crisis to lead to a significant shift in the relationship between emerging markets and the U.S. dollar? Would more EM countries potentially try to move away from dollar dependence? Well, it's it's, it's hard to move away from dollar dependence if creditors still want to lend to you in dollars. And given the volatility in emerging currencies, uh, I can see in some sense, more pressure uh, for those economies who want to still borrow to borrow in hard currency, just because the creditor side may be less willing to take local currency risk. Uh, we don't know. Um, you know, what I, I think the general move is likely to be towards more resilient balance sheets across the board, so higher reserves, uh, less external debt, and in a world of less external debt, if you can manage it, uh, less hard currency debt. The countervailing pressure on all of that is that there are a set of countries that really don't want to adjust in the near term, and they may go out and borrow an awful lot of dollars. I'm thinking of a country like Saudi Arabia, uh, which has a choice, threefold choice. It can either reduce its imports to reflect lower levels of oil exports, lower revenues from oil, oil exports, or it can maintain its imports at relatively high levels and make up for the deficit in foreign exchange by borrowing, probably in dollars, or it can run down its reserves. Uh, so I would think that, you know, for Saudi Arabia, the easiest choice might well be more borrowing and a less resilient balance sheet. So I think the, the, the response will vary. Uh, but the basic lesson here is that only emerging economies with fortress-like external balance sheets uh, ha will be able to come off relatively well. So I think the pressure, general direction of pressure will be towards more fortress-like balance sheets. And one of the reasons why I think it's important that the IMF be very aggressive and in some ways very generous in its response uh, because uh, if every country wants to have a fortress balance sheet, that introduces inefficiencies of its own. Um, and so you would want, in some sense, insurance mechanisms to help absorb true exogenous shocks so that every country in the world doesn't try to self-insure. And in principle, that's the role that the IMF and the other multilaterals could play. 
Speaking of countries that have uh, fortress balance sheets that we haven't really talked about much, obviously China, which still has an extraordinary uh, amount of foreign reserves and has shown the ability to sort of withstand the acute phase of this crisis and use uh, domestic firepower to uh, maintain its economy. It appears to be uh, coming back online. Nonetheless, it's going to face pressure, particularly if there is any sort of you know, modest deglobalization, because again, uh, exports and so forth. What do you see as uh, potential core shifts that we could be looking for in, from the sort of uh, Chinese economic model going forward? So I think, you know, there's a couple of powerful uh, offsetting forces that are impacting uh, China and China's uh, external position right now. Uh, one is the broad contraction in all trade, which hurts China because China trades a lot. Probably hurts activity as much as it hurts the balance of payments. And then China, because it is the world's biggest commodity importer, stands to be the biggest winner from lower oil prices. And because China has been such a huge source of tourists, the lockdown and the fall in tourism has significantly reduce China's imports, and therefore it works to improve China's balance of payments. So in the short run, I don't actually see any pressure on China's balance of payments. If anything, I think as China's exports, particularly of medical equipment, ramp up, and as the full impact of lower oil prices shows up in China's import data, China's surplus, in my view, is likely to rise. But that rise will come with less activity. It's going to be a, an increase in your surplus when you're exporting less and importing less. So there is still a shock to China's economy. And there's obviously been a shock to China's economy from the measures that China has taken to slow the, the spread of the virus internally. And I think now China, broadly speaking, confronts a, a choice between two different growth models. I don't think uh, going back to the 2007-2008 export-driven growth model is a viable option in today's world. That would be a world where China's current account surplus goes to like 10% of Chinese GDP or a trillion dollars. And, the world becomes more dependent on Chinese manufacturing. And I think there's fairly obvious reasons why that's not a politically or economically acceptable outcome right now. So then China either has to maintain domestic dynamism by, through a very high level of investment, and that has been done through a mix of loose credit for state-sponsored firms, a lot of government-sponsored industrial policy projects, uh, and then um, a lot of uh, quasi-public investment, often done by local governments. All the things we used to spend all sorts of time talking about. There's no reason why, given China's high savings rate, it couldn't try to do that yet again and generate a bit of a recovery using the tried and true Chinese investment from above growth model. The alternative, and it's one I'm personally drawn to, 
is a world where China radically reforms its uh, system of tax and its system of spending. China actually has an incredibly regressive tax system. China collects 1.3 percentage points of its GDP and income tax, which is a extremely low number. In the U.S., and you know, we aren't we aren't considered a high tax country. We get 10% of GDP from personal income tax. So China's at kind of one eighth of our level. The system of social contributions has a very high minimum contribution for urban workers, which means that in a lot of cases, the poorer you are, the bigger your tax burden. And then rural workers, those who lack uh, the right hukou, uh, household residency, don't pay into the system of social contributions. They're lower cost to the employer, uh, but they also don't get urban social benefits. So a system where China reformed its taxation really quite radically, much bigger collections from income tax, completely rethought distribution of the burden of social contributions, subsidy, income subsidies for low-wage work like we have in the U.S. through the Earned Income Tax Credit, combined with much more spending on public health, much uh, less of an out-of-pocket expense for Chinese uh, workers who seek routine medical care, and an expansion of social benefits so that um, migrant workers can send their children to school where they work rather than having to have them educated where they're from and live with their grandparents. That kind of deep transformation uh, faces enormous resistance, but I think that's by far the best path forward China. And I think it's got some really positive externalities for the world. Uh, a lot more investment in public health in China sounds like something that would uh, uh, have been great to have done five years ago. Brad, just going back to the world of emerging markets as a whole, and I know we're not supposed to treat it as one big homogenous blob, but I'm wondering if there's an indicator or one linchpin that you are currently watching to gauge just how bad the difficulties or the crisis in EM could actually get? I'm not really watching one. Uh, I think, you know, I'm watching the oil price, knowing that it splits emerging economies into winners and losers. But the more extreme the move and the longer the move, the deeper the loss and the losers. Uh, and then, you know, any any index of the dollar against uh, uh, a basket of emerging market currencies that excludes China I think is a, a, a good proxy for stress. The IIF's capital flow data, high frequency capital flow data has, is now widely followed and they've done a really good job. And I also watch that very closely. So following on Tracy's uh, question about uh, uh, EM as a whole, and as we were talking about in the beginning, people will be listening to this at the uh, uh, d- sort of during the period of the IMF spring meeting. And you've talked sort of generally about the need uh, for the IMF to be generous here and what it can do and sort of uh, providing reserves. What has it already done and what specifically in sort of uh, its toolbox should it do that it's never done before if it's a crisis that it's uh, never experienced on this scale? And how is the IMF itself liquidity or capital constrained? Because I don't think I have a great feel for 
the IMF's own constraints, where they come from, and uh, how how aggressive the the sort of the natural limitations on its own uh, ability to be aggressive. Sure. So I mean, I think what the IMF is now doing is uh, it is uh, it has a set of rapid financing instruments uh, that are generally give countries uh, low levels of access, but they get the access very quickly. And an enormous number of countries, I think it's close to 90, have applied for access to these rapid financing uh, vehicles, which will get somewhere between 50 and $100 billion out the door. And then the IMF has pre-existing credit lines uh, with Mexico and Colombia. Those lines haven't been drawn, but they are available. So that would sort of define, I think, the IMF's existing response. To think about what the more the IMF could do, I guess it probably helps to start by talking about the IMF's liquidity position. Uh, the IMF's capital position isn't a real constraint. The World Bank runs on a capital model. The IMF runs on a quota model, and it sets aside loan loss reserves and the like. But essentially, the IMF takes contributions. It doesn't lever them up in the outside market, and then it lends them out. Because it is the preferred creditor, it historically has always been paid. So it, it doesn't operate on a capital model where it has to uh, use an, a small amount of equity capital to support a broad amount of lending. It operates more on a pooling model whereby contributions from its members are pooled and lent out. And the fact that you're defaulting on the IMF is defaulting on the world effectively assures payment. The IMF now has about 600 billion in quota resources or uh, permanent contributions. Uh, it's lent out about 200, and not all of the quota contributions are what the IMF calls usable. Some countries contribute in their own currency, and it's not very uh, practical to lend that out. In addition, the IMF now has a 225 billion supplemental. A credit line from many of its members called the New Arrangement to Borrow, which allows the IMF to borrow from a subset of its membership to increase its lending capacity. That is already uh, expected to go to around uh, $450 billion at the end of this year. A lot of people, Ted Truman leading the way, have said that this should be accelerated, uh, and I hope that is agreed at the meetings next week. The U.S. already has approval from Congress to uh, bring forward the U.S. contribution to the new arrangements to borrow. So it's just a matter of getting all the needed approvals. And then there's a, a final backup credit line, which is a set of bilateral loans from members of the IMF. That is now $400 billion, but it is set to fall to $200 billion when the new arrangement to borrow expands. And a lot of people have suggested, hey, in the face of a global crisis, why bring this backup line of credit down? Keep it at its current level of 400. So if the IMF were to agree at the meetings or its members were to agree to bring forward the expansion of the new arrangement to borrow and keep the current bilateral lines uh, available, then the IMF would really have close to uh, a trillion dollars in new lending capacity 
on top of the 200 billion or so that is already committed. Now, the precise amount that's already committed, that's gonna change. More of these rapid instruments are, are approved, but that gives you a ballpark uh, estimate of the size. Now, there's one other thing the IMF can do, which is a little complex and, uh, and generates a lot of controversy, and it's called an SDR allocation. The SDR is the IMF's unit of account. It's basically a basket of the world's biggest currencies, mostly dollars and euros. And the IMF, uh, thanks to uh, John Maynard Keynes, has the authority to give all of its members SDRs, which act as reserves. It's called an SDR allocation. And right now the IMF could provide a 500 billion SDR allocation with the support of the US administration, but without a, a congressional vote. Anything more, much more than that would require a congressional vote. Now the IMF has kind of indicated they're not gonna push this right now, which I think is a mistake. I presume that's because the US has indicated it doesn't support it right now, which I also think is a mistake. This is a time when I think almost all countries around the world do need more reserves. And this is a way of getting those reserves out into the system very quickly. So the special drawing rights issue has sort of been on, on the radar for years and years now. Why do you see why do you think there's so much resistance to it? I mean it is kind of global money creation, and a lot of people don't like the idea of having an international institution create global money or reserves, foreign exchange reserves. Uh, and then it's not targeted, so it goes to all members. Uh, that includes some members that the United States doesn't like. Uh, but, you know, hey, I've noted the biggest beneficiary is actually the United States. And given how creative the Treasury has been recently, and using the exchange stabilization fund, which is the United States' own reserves, to backstop Fed lending. It's kind of uh, penny-wise but pound-foolish to get obsessed about Iran's small SDR allocation and deny yourself a much bigger SDR allocation, which you've already shown in the U.S.'s case, you know how to use um, and use effectively uh, and creatively. But those are the kinds of arguments. It is an increase in everyone's reserves in proportion to their uh, quota or contribution to the IMF. Before we go, I want to go back real quickly to what we were talking about before with regards to the potential path to, of Chinese reforms that they could take. You sort of stressed that this would be a good opportunity to uh, re, re, uh, rethink their domestic redistribution. That's something we've talked about with uh, Michael Pettis in the past as well. If we were to see a more robust sort of Chinese household sector, basically, more buying power among the lower and middle classes, presumably more uh, external demand for goods, could this in theory be the beginning of a further internationalization of the Chinese UN in terms of the sort of need to if there were domestic buyers of all kinds of goods, not just uh, commodities and not just tourists, could this begin to accelerate that process? I mean, it could be part of that. There's, I don't think there's a direct line between 
the reforms to China's taxation and public spending that I've called for and a broader global role for China's currency. The broader global role depends to some degree on uh, the willingness of the world to hold yuan-denominated assets, CNY-denominated assets. That's partially a function of China's exchange rate choices, partially a function of the people's confidence that if you put money into China, you can get it out in times of stress, and partially a function of, you know, kind of the broader utility of the Chinese yuan in settling global transactions. Uh, and right now, you know, trade between Africa and Europe is not denominated in Chinese yuan. It's denominated in dollars. And I still think it's more likely if there's a change, the change will be to, towards more trade denominated in euros than toward more trade denominated in yuan outside of trade with China's immediate neighbors. Now, one thing that I would note here is that a China that has a more consumer-oriented economy is in some ways a, a China that needs to trade less. China is perfectly capable of making its own consumer goods. Uh, it tends to import investment goods and tends to import commodities. So I don't necessarily think this is a China that is uh, out in the global market sucking in consumer goods from the rest of the world. I think it's more likely that it is a China that imports less and a China that also exports less. And that would be kind of consistent with Xi's vision and China 2025 of national self-reliance. But it's also consistent with a desire on the part of many of China's current big trading partners for more resilience and more diversity in their supply chains. Uh, so I, I can imagine it being part of a somewhat less globalized world. And in that world, there may be less pressure to move away from the dollar. Uh, Brad, finally then to that point, I mean, again, we don't know what the future policy paths look like. Uh, would, the, would you say the U.S. is in that situation where if political leaders chose to, it could more or less close itself off to the world from a trade standpoint in terms of adequate domestic demand and capability of building the things it needs? Well, I mean, right now the U.S. is, well, I shouldn't say right now, I say, you know, over the past uh, 20 years, the U.S. has generated surplus domestic demand, which it has shared with the world. That's what ongoing trade deficits mean. Uh, and as a result, the U.S. has less robust and well-developed supply chains in a lot of industries uh, than some of our big trade competitors. I mean, one thing which probably should get more attention going forward is that uh, our biggest export industry by far, particularly when you look at exports outside of a, the immediate neighborhood of Canada and Mexico, is aircraft. Uh, and one sector that is likely to have a persistent decline is aircraft. Uh, less tourism equals less travel equals less demand for planes. And then Boeing has some self-created problems as well. So in that sense, the U.S. Uh, does face a challenge of offsetting the loss of a big export sector, not the loss, but a, a reduction in size of its 
very large export sector and making that up with new domestic sectors or new export sectors. Uh, but the bigger point is that the bigger your home market, uh, in general, the less absolute need you have to trade is, I think, true. Uh, but that doesn't mean that shutting yourself off from trade doesn't still have cost. And I think the, the challenge is kind of finding the right balance going forward between resilience uh, and the advantages and efficiencies created by integration. I think that there will be a shift towards greater priority on resilience, and there should be. I certainly think the U.S. should get rid of the tax incentives that now encourage the offshoring of pharmaceutical production. That's a separate issue. And, you know, as the world moves towards a higher priority on resilience, there'll be a little bit less emphasis on efficiency. But in my view, it's not, you don't go to absolute resilience and give up all efficiencies from trade, nor do you uh, remain in a world where any efficiency, including the less savory tax efficiencies that many companies now exploit through their global supply chain, are tolerated and encouraged. So getting that new balance right, to me, is a, a, a policy imperative for the next three years. Uh, Brad, thank you so much for joining us. That was a uh, fantastic conversation, and I'm sure we'll have you back uh, on again before too long. <laughs> Very good. We'll get you that tote bag. Yeah. Bye. You know, Tracy, obviously, when we uh, booked Brad, I think uh, the focus was to some extent, okay, what's the EM angle on this crisis? And we certainly hit that. But I don't think there's anyone we talk to regularly that's capable of pulling in so many different threads and connecting it all together, including at the end, how U.S. tax policy encouraged the offshoring of pharmaceutical manufacturing and how that's coming to haunt the U.S. in the past. There's no one who can pull it together like Brad. Yeah, Brad has an uncanny ability to really uh, get to the biggest themes possible in a given subject. So he's basically talking about rebalancing um, the entire U.S. economy and also the Chinese economy. And obviously, that's a big deal. I think a lot about how we're probably going to see pressure to do this at the same time that the government is dealing with the coronavirus. So the U.S. government and also potentially emerging market economies are basically going to be under pressure to reform their economies or change them in some really, really big ways at the same time that all the virus drama is happening. And I sometimes wonder what that mix is going to look like and, and whether or not they're going to be able to get the balance right, as Brad put it, uh, when they're under that kind of pressure. Yeah, no, absolutely. All kinds of uh, interesting things here. I think like, you know, when I think about crises more broadly, and you and I have talked about this, having followed um, the last crisis, is crises create moments where people sort of rethink everything, business models and growth models and so mm -hmm. forth. And just the, the speed and severity of this one and the fact that the literally or virtually nobody is unaffected by it, I think lends itself to that. So all these questions about how much should we trade? How much should we depend on external financing? Everything is now sort of mm -hmm. up for debate in a way that it hasn't really been in quite a while. 
Yeah, with big crises come uh, big questions, I guess. And one of those has got to be about the role of yeah. the US dollar and whether or not it plays too central a role in the global financial system. And I suspect we're going to end up talking about that again very, very soon. Yeah, and it's important because people, you know, people are always calling for the demise of like, oh, the, the dollar is going to go down. And I think, you know, a point that I've tried to make and others is not that like the what may contribute to the demise of the dollar is not what people think. Like they look at, oh, we're spending all this money or the Fed is expanding the balance sheet by trillions of dollars. I think it really is going to come down much more to these questions about how much do countries want to be interdependent on on each other from the U.S., from a real goods perspective, from other countries, from a financing perspective? Do we want to become a little less interdependent on each other? That question may be what sort of determines whether the dollar takes on some sort of diminished role in the future than it has today. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess also whether or not the Federal Reserve is happy to be playing the role of the world's central banker. Although I got to say recently, it it seems like it is. So um, yes, that, that's sort of a step change in, in the central bank's behavior. So lots to talk about there. An endless stream of major market crises for us to delve into, Joe. You know what I was thinking, though, like at the end, <laughs> With Brad, because it was so comprehensive, it's like maybe we're getting to the point where we're like hitting the big ones. I'm sure there's like 10 more really big ones we haven't hit yet, but maybe we're sort of rounding the corner a little bit in terms of the extremely uh, big themes. You will never let me forget this, will you? (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You should follow me on Twitter, or you can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our guest on Twitter, Brad Setzer. He's Brad underscore Setzer. And be sure to follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today, as well as all of the Bloomberg podcasts under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. 